0: Well, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1 as we return to our study of this relatively short epistle. And to begin our message today and set our minds on the subject, I want to read the whole chapter Titus chapter 1, you can follow along as, as I read. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested even his word in the commandment of God, excuse me, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just. Devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and the commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. If you were to think about any church you've been a part of or had any knowledge of, that you would identify as in some way unhealthy, what would you identify as the core problem? I'm not necessarily talking about when a church goes through a difficult time, uh, perhaps when um, a pastor goes to heaven or when there's particular suffering or persecution. I'm also not talking about when churches look unhealthy on the outside because maybe they're dying, uh, made up mostly of older members, and they're slowly passing away without being replaced. A church can look unhealthy and be unhealthy, or a church can look healthy from the outside. They can look vibrant from the standpoint of an observer, but still be dangerously unhealthy. What is the core problem that causes an unhealthy church? Would you perhaps identify a lack of quality programs? Maybe the children's ministry is lackluster. Perhaps you would identify that the staff aren't doing their jobs well, and so there's a lot of miscommunication between ministries and key individuals in the church. Could it be that the music is off key, or that the soundboard and the slides aren't run very well? Or could it be that everything is done really well, excellent actually, but there's no home Bible studies, or... The church lacks really good fellowship. People leave churches for all of these reasons. Well, let me suggest to you what I think is the core problem of any church that is unhealthy, whether it looks like it or not. Unqualified elders. Unqualified elders. Every church has elders, whether they call them that or not. Some churches simply stick to the term pastors. Uh, Some call their elders deacons to distinguish them from the staff pastors. That's especially the case in some Baptist churches. But every church has one or more men and sometimes women whom they would identify as the pastors or elders or leaders of the church. And I would submit to you that to the degree that the elders are qualified according to the biblical standard, the church as a whole will be healthy, even if it's going through a difficult time. And to the degree that the elders are unqualified according to the biblical standard, that church will be unhealthy no matter what it looks like to the casual observer. How do unqualified people find themselves in the office of elder? Well, it's simple. Churches often don't even consider what are the qualifications or the roles of elders before they appoint men, again, and sometimes women, to that position. Many elders may more or less meet the biblical qualifications in terms of their character, but they don't meet the qualifications and the skills necessary to fulfill the role that elders are given in Scripture. In most churches that I've been aware of, elders are appointed because the congregation really likes the man. He's a good guy. But no one tested the man to confirm he's prepared to fill the role. Many good and godly men are appointed as elders who are unqualified because they can neither teach sound doctrine nor can they defend against false doctrine. When I was a pastor in Washington, the state of a tiny church, one of our elders invited me out to lunch Uh, one time. uh, He said he wanted to give me some feedback on my sermon. And uh, so as we were enjoying a a good meal, he pulls out this sheet from his uh, coat and uh, he clearly had some notes there he wanted to share with me. And so he went on to say that there were some words that I had used in the sermon that he thought I would do well to avoid. Of course I'm thinking, okay, that's interesting. Words like doctrine, theology, these concepts are too complex, he said, and I need to teach at a third grade level. Now listen, I loved this man as a brother in Christ. He was passionate for Christ, but he was not qualified to be an elder. I could tell you story after story after story of men that I know personally or have close knowledge of who are pastors and elders, but who are blissfully unaware of their disqualification, not because of gross sin in their life, but simply because they don't know the scripture. I'm convinced that one of the reasons so many unqualified men are put into the position of elder is because people, many people, have fundamental misunderstanding of the church and therefore the role of elders. They don't understand the significance of the qualifications and the role of elders, so they don't take those roles seriously. So before we get to the qualifications of elders in verses 5 to 9 and the role of elders in verse 9, I want to use our time today to introduce this section by addressing the question that's rarely asked, and that is, why elders? Why elders? Why did Jesus Christ so design the church in a way that put elders with these particular qualifications and their roles as the leaders? You can think of this sermon really as the introduction to the next two sermons. And so I confess to you that even though I read the whole chapter, we're not going to touch Titus chapter 1 today. We're going to touch a whole host of other scriptures, but not Titus 1. My hope is that as a result of this sermon, as well as the next two, these truths that we will walk through today will be so ingrained in your heart and mind that you will demand that Hope Bible Church, always and forever and only appoints qualified men as elders. And for those of you who the Lord may take to some other place in church, that you will know what to look for in the men that you are going to be submitting under. To arrive at our answer of why elders, I want to put together a seven-piece puzzle, if you will, and describing each piece in detail so that when we lay down that seventh piece, which will be the answer to our question, I will hardly have to explain it because it will be so obvious this is why Christ designed the church this way. All right, so seven pieces of the puzzle to understand why Christ designed the church with elders, with these specific qualifications and roles as the leaders of the church. Piece number one. God... Is the God of truth. God is the God of truth. Take a moment and think about this for a little bit. How would you define truth? What is truth? Let me suggest to you this definition truth is that which is consistent with reality from God's perspective. Truth is that which is consistent with reality from God's perspective. That's a definition I've used. I don't know where I got it uh, for many years, uh, but this week it occurred to me, I should check to see what the dictionary says about truth. And so I looked up Merriam-Webster's dictionary and I found that the definition I just gave you is very similar to definition 3A of the Merriam-Webster dictionary, which says this, the property as of a statement of being in accord with fact or reality. The only problem with that statement as defined that way is that people often disagree with what the facts are and what reality is. And so there has to be some standard by which we say, no, this is the fact and this is reality. Witnesses on the stand present different facts and sometimes self-contradictory facts. A scientist who is a Christian and a scientist who is an atheist fundamentally understand reality in completely different ways. So in order for truth to be objective, there has to be an objective determiner of reality. And that is God. For something to be objectively and absolutely true, it has to correspond to reality from God's perspective. Before the material universe was created, there was the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who lived and and existed in perfect harmony together. They were in unity and perfect love. They were reality. There was nothing else. But then, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And all of a sudden, there were galaxies and stars and planets and creatures and people. But unlike the infinite creator, these created beings that had consciousness were finite. Their awareness of and understanding of reality is limited by the five senses. We have limitations, but we have the ability to receive information that would expand our perception of reality. God's not like that. God has no limitations. He understands all things in terms of his awareness and understanding of reality we call this the omniscience of god that he knows all things perfectly real and potential and because he is outside of time he is able to see everything in time and space from every angle without anything being hidden first john 3:20 says that god knows all things isaiah 40 verse 13 is quoted twice in the new testament And it says he who or who has directed the spirit of the Lord or who as his counselor has informed him. Isaiah goes on to say, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Well, those are rhetorical questions that have just one simple answer. No one, no one taught God. God knows all things. He sees reality perfectly perfectly. No one can ever tell anything to God that he doesn't already know. And also, nothing can be hidden from God. In Psalm 10, the wicked lie to themselves when they say, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Or in Psalm 94, they say, The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. But these are the thoughts of fools. Fools. The author of Psalm 94 goes on to say, Pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere breath. And Hebrews 4.13 agrees and says, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So God knows all things and nothing can be hidden from him. Are you sinning in the shadows? Do you think you can hide from God? Do you think that your sin is kept secret? It's not. God knows. God sees. God hears the whispers of your heart, and you will not get away with sin that you think is hidden. Are you suffering and you feel alone? You are not alone. God's eyes are on you, His ears are attentive to your prayers. God sees your tears and hears your weeping soul. God will not allow you to suffer forever. He will deal with those who harm you and will vindicate your suffering. God is the God of truth in the sense that He knows all things he has all the facts. He sees all reality in its fullness. There are no shadows that hide things from God. But we can go a step further to say that God speaks all truth. Not only does he know all things, but he speaks truth. Everything God says is without error. It's completely accurate. It has no shade of deception. We saw that in verse 2 of Titus 1, where it said that God cannot lie. Hebrews 6.18 says, It is impossible for God to lie. And after receiving the Davidic covenant, David said to the Lord, You are God and your words are truth. Psalm twenty five verse ten says, All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. Psalm 31.5, which Jesus partly quoted as he hung on the cross, says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord God of truth. Psalm 111, verse 7, the work of His hands are truth and justice. All His precepts are sure. Psalm 119, verse 142, your righteousness is everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. Verse 151, all your commandments are truth. Verse 160, the sum of all your words are truth. You put everything God says and the sum total of it is completely true. Even Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Are you getting the picture here? God wants us to know that not only does he know all things, he knows the truth, but he speaks the truth. He is utterly committed to faithfully revealing to us reality from his completely perfect perception. If you want to understand life In this world, there's only one source you can turn to, and that is God, who is a God of truth. The second piece, piece number two, Jesus Christ was born to testify to the truth. Jesus Christ was born to testify to the truth. Now, Jesus is God, so all we've said about God applies to Jesus, But we won't fully understand Jesus if we don't understand this second piece that he testified to the truth. In the final hours of of his life on this earth, he stood before Pilate who had Jesus' life in his hands and he was wanting to hear from Jesus his response to the accusations that were being made against him. And in that conversation, Jesus said to Pilate, for this reason I've been born, for this I've come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. The life and ministry of Jesus had the purpose of testifying to the truth of who God is, to the truth of of what God knows, to the truth that God had revealed, and to the truth through new revelation. Jesus made the truth clearer than it had ever been made before. Let's walk through these. Jesus testified to the truth of who God is. In John one eighteen, it says no one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. The word explained there translates the Greek word exegeomai, from which we get exegesis, which means to interpret or to explain or describe. So even though no one had ever seen the Father, Jesus' ministry served to make God known. That's why Paul writes in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Or Hebrews 1.3, that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory in the exact representation of His nature. So Jesus testified to the truth of who God is by being God. And Jesus also testified to the truth of what God knows. Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In a prophecy of the Messiah, Isaiah wrote, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. As Jesus began his ministry and he was introduced to Nathanael, He said to Nathanael, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said, How how do you know me? And Jesus said, When you were under that tree, before Philip called you, I saw you. And to this, Nathanael could only think of one response. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Now Nathanael responded that way because he recognized that Jesus was omniscient, that he could know things that no one else could know several times in the gospels as jesus interacted with the pharisees he didn't just interact and respond to what they were saying he responded to what was going on in the heart in matthew 9 jesus heals a paralytic and forgave his sin and the pharisees were thinking this is blasphemy who can forgive sin but god alone and so the text tells us knowing their thoughts jesus said why are you thinking evil in your hearts And this reflects the truth of Psalm 139, verse 4, which says, Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Jesus testified to the truth of who God is, to the truth of what God knows, and to the truth that God had revealed. As Jesus began his ministry one Sabbath, he was in the synagogue, and he read a messianic prophecy after which he said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He was interpreting the revelation that the people already had from God. The primary ministry of Jesus, as we know, was teaching. He was constantly teaching the disciples and teaching the people and teaching in the synagogues. And most of his teaching was not new truth. He was reinterpreting. Let me correct that. He was correcting the false interpretations of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was always explaining the true meaning of Scripture. And we call, in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, he would often say, You have heard that it was said, meaning the interpretation of the Pharisees, but I tell you, giving a true interpretation. He was constantly hounded by the Pharisees and Sadducees as they sought to catch him in some false teaching. And, th- and so what they would do is they would bring to him the most uh, uh, difficult theological. Uh, debates that they had at that time to see what Jesus would say. And every time, Jesus would answer with the clear and simple interpretation of Scripture that cut through the confusion and the traditions of men. Jesus testified to the truth of who God is, what God knows, what God has revealed. And finally, Jesus testified to the truth through new revelation. New revelation. Hebrews 1.1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days he has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world jesus was the spokesperson of god to reveal new truth in the gospel of john we find the words truly truly on the lips of jesus 25 times and most of those occasions jesus is speaking new revelation Consider these examples. John 3.3 Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or John 5.24 Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come to judgment but is passed out of death into life. Or John 8.58 Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus revealed truth about the person of God, the kingdom of God, the enemies of God, the people of God, the plans and purposes of God, and much more. God is a God of truth. Jesus came to testify to the truth. And the third piece is that Jesus is the truth. Piece number three, Jesus is the truth. In saying that Jesus testified to the truth, we need to be careful that we don't separate Jesus from the truth as if the truth is something outside or separated from Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now that's an audacious statement if you really think about it. I mean, if any one of us were to say, I am the truth. We would recognize that as the apex of pride and self conceit wouldn't we? We don't have a problem if someone says, I'm looking for the truth, or I know the truth, or I believe the truth, or I love the truth. But we cannot say, I am the truth. But when Jesus said that, it wasn't pride because Jesus is the truth. In Hebrew, the word amet can be translated truth or faithful, depending on the context. It's the word in Exodus 34:6, when God dis- defines himself, when he says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That self-definition is repeated numerous times in the Old Testament, and especially in the Psalms and Prophets. And in the New Testament, we read this in John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Literally, grace and truth came to be, came into existence in this world through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? In other words, truth being defined by God resided outside of this creation. All humanity is is in creation and truth is outside of that because it is in the being of God. The locus of truth was in God and only as God desired would shafts of light, if you will, penetrate into this world. Well, when Jesus walked among us as the light of the world, he wasn't speaking outside truth. He was the, tr- the truth was emanating from Him because He is the truth. If we lived during that time as when Jesus wa- was walking on the earth and we were wanting to know truth, we didn't have to look to God in heaven. We didn't have to look to Scripture that we could have done both of those things. We could have just looked right at Christ Himself and said, there's the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. Piece number four. Christians are those whose minds have been opened to understand the truth. The fourth puzzle piece we need to understand, why Jesus Christ would build His church with elders, uh, with these particular qualifications and roles as leaders, is that Christians are those whose minds have been opened to understand the truth. While that last statement I made about looking to Christ for the truth is fresh, Listen to how Paul describes salvation in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what happens in the heart of a person at the moment of salvation, this is it right here. What God does when He saves a person is He shines light into your heart so that you can understand knowledge. And that knowledge is the glory of God. And the glory of God, which is the full manifestation of all of his attributes, is most vividly and clearly represented in the face of Jesus Christ. An unbeliever is lost in darkness. They are blind. They cannot see. They don't even want to see God. But when God breaks through the darkness and gives eyes to see and shines light into the heart they see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ which is to say they come to the knowledge of the truth and they believe and they can't help but believe because when they see the reality when they see reality as it really is it produces joy and delight because once one is able to see who God is And what He has done, we're drawn to Him. Once we see our own sinfulness in contrast to to the holiness of God, and yet you see that this holy God became a man who walked on this earth living a life that you couldn't live, paying the debt that you deserve, death on a cross, and then rose from the grave and now offers forgiveness and cleansing and washing from all your sin. That light, that knowledge which comes to us when God shines that light, thrusts us into worship. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul describes this dynamic using the illustration of our sense of smell. To those who are being saved, he says, the knowledge of the truth has the aroma of life. Like smelling salts, it's a scent that awakens life in us. Being made in the image of God, it is our original human nature to love the truth. But because the curse of sin blinds us and causes us to hate the truth, a radical transformation has to take place in the heart. And that's what God does when he makes us a new creature in Christ. Ephesians 4.24 says of the new self, that the new self is in the likeness of God, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. To be a Christian is to have the truth in you. 1 John 2.4 says, The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, he is a liar. The truth is not in him. Or 1 John 3.18-19, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth. And our, we will assure our heart before him. So Christians are those whose minds have been opened to understand truth. And because the church is the only place where you're going to find those whose minds have been opened to the truth, God has designed the church to be proclaimers and defenders of the truth. That's puzzle piece number five. Piece number five, the church exists to uphold the truth in the world. The church exists to uphold the truth in the world. After writing instructions regarding the qualifications of elders and deacons, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3.15, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the body of Christ. We are, as it is often said, the hands and the feet of Christ in this world. We are not the truth. Christ is the truth. But we are called as his body to represent and to proclaim and to defend the truth. With regard to the growth of the body of Christ, how does the body grow? This is how Paul describes it in Ephesians 4. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth is how we encourage growth and becoming more and more like Christ, who is the truth. In Titus 2, slaves are commanded to behave in such a way that they adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. In other words, slaves, and I think this principle can be applied to all believers, are to make the truth attractive by how they live their life. Our lives should put on display the the beauty of truth. The way we work, for example, should make our co-workers attracted to the truth as they see the diligence and excellence with which we do our work. Our homes should be orderly and our relationships harmonious and peaceful and loving. So that unbelievers are attracted to God's design for marriage and family. The church upholds truth by speaking the truth, representing the truth, and by proclaiming the truth. The Great Commission, which Jesus gives to all believers, is this. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we proclaim the truth every time we explain the gospel. We proclaim the truth every time a person is baptized and they declare God's work of salvation in their life. We proclaim the truth every time we take the Lord's Supper, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Peter says, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him, the truth, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Finally, the church upholds the truth by defending the truth. Titus 1.9 says that elders are called to refute those who contradict the faithful word. In writing to Timothy, Paul says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing And so he says to Timothy, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Or Paul says to the Romans, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. The church is to uphold the truth by speaking the truth, representing the truth, proclaiming the truth, and defending the truth. The church is called to correct false doctrine, to rebuke false teachers, to turn away who teach error, uh, to turn away from those who teach error and reject anything that is not of the truth. Now, in contrast to the God who is the God of truth, in contrast to Christ who testified to the truth and in fact is the truth, in contrast to believers whose minds have been open to the truth, and in contrast to the church which upholds the truth, the sixth puzzle piece of why Christ instituted the church with elders with their particular qualifications and roles is this, piece number six, the currency of the world, the flesh, and the devil is deception. The currency of the world, the flesh and the devil, is deception. The world traffics in counterfeit reality and false promises and false gods. This began in the garden when the evil one deceived Eve into questioning God's truth and God's character. Did God really say, He said, You will not surely die questioning God's character, claiming he was lying. He convinced her that she could become like God. Jesus said the devil does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. And when the God of this world, as he's called in 2 Corinthians or as it says in Ephesians, Uh, The prince of the power of the air, whose spirit is working in the sons of disobedience. When he is a liar and the father of lies, you can be certain that those who follow him, which is the whole world of unbelievers, that they will do the same. Paul describes the nature of unbelievers, as we've seen in recent messages in Romans 3, where he quotes Psalm 5, saying, Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they keep deceiving. Children lie to the parents, parents lie to their children, people lie to the person they are dating, spouses lie to each other, people lie to get a job or to keep a job, people lie to save on taxes, people lie to save face and not get in trouble, people lie about their weight or about their health, people lie on the witness stand, they lie to investigators, they lie to the media, politicians lie to get elected and to stay elected. Lie, lie, lie. That's what the world of unbelievers does. It is a world of lies. But most of all, the world lies about God. The world lies about God. Romans 1, 18 and verse 25 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so in Isaiah 44, the prophet vividly portrays the insanity of idolatry. He describes a man who cuts down a tree, and with a portion of the of that wood, he warms himself and he bakes some bread, and another portion he he carves out into an idol, which he bows down before and worships. Isaiah condemns the idolater when he says he feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand as he's holding his idol? Anyone who lives this life believing anything or anyone other than the one true God is living a lie. They are living in a universe that doesn't exist They are deceived about the true nature of reality. And we're seeing this, aren't we? Because our society rejects the one true God, they have come to the point where they cannot see what is real anymore. They cannot look at murder and say, that is wrong. They cannot look at a man or a woman and identify the gender. They cannot look at a person with special needs and see dignity and value. They they look at evil and call it good. They look at immorality and call it normal. They look at violence and call it peace. They look at silence and call it violence. In other words, or in the words of Romans 128, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And then Paul has 22 manifestations of the depraved mind, among which are deception, being without understanding, being untrustworthy and slandering, which is a form of lying. The devil lies. The world lies. You know, our flesh lies to us. Every temptation is a lie. Every desire in your heart that violates God's standard of righteousness and goodness is a lie. Our flesh lies to us, telling us that God is keeping something from us that we need and that we deserve. Our flesh lies to us that no one will find out and no one will get hurt. Our flesh lies to us, telling us that if we grab hold of the object of our desire, we will finally be satisfied. We will be happy and all will be well. Every act of sin is the result of believing a lie. Or put another way, every sin is an act of insanity. This is the world we are born into, and this is who we are prior to and apart from salvation in Christ. So hear me clearly, I'm not saying this is the world out there as if we're somehow better than the world. What sets us apart is simply that we have been saved by Christ, and our minds have been opened to the truth. We were Those who were lost in lies. But now we are in this lifelong process of increasingly coming to a greater understanding of the truth. And we continue to battle daily with the lies of the flesh. We live in a world and a society and in bodies that operates on the currency of lies and deception. God is a God of truth. Jesus came to testify to the truth. Jesus is the truth. Christians are those whose minds have been open to the truth. The church is designed to uphold the truth in the world. And because the currency of the world, the flesh and the devil, is lies and deception. Puzzle piece number seven, and just briefly, puzzle piece number seven, the leaders of Christ's church must be men whose lives and teaching aligns with, promotes, and protects the truth. The leaders of Christ Church must be men whose lives and teaching aligns with promotes and protects the church and the truth. With all we've gone through, I trust you can see by now that what the church needs in its leaders to fulfill its mission is not business acumen or charisma or life experience or tech savviness or fashion sense. The leaders of Christ's church can have all kinds of characteristics, but the most important characteristic they need is to be men whose lives and teaching aligns with, promotes, and protects the truth. Because that, if that isn't in place, the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil will invade and destroy a local church. And by destroy, I don't necessarily mean that the church will blow up and cease to exist, though obviously that can happen what most often happens is a church becomes ineffective or worse, a promoter of evil. It becomes unable to shepherd the flock and make disciples. As we will see next week, God doesn't call men who are super spiritual or who have achieved some higher level of living than everyone else. God calls men to be elders who are consistent Christians. Men whose lives align with the truth. Their lives aren't perfect, but they're reputable as being consistent with sound doctrine. And then in the next message, we'll see that the elders are not just good, godly men, but men who have so invested themselves in the Scripture that they can teach sound doctrine and defend truth against those who seek to distort and attack it. In short, the church doesn't need its leaders, as its leaders, a a few good men. The church needs elders who are men of truth. Only with men of truth at the helm will the church survive and thrive in a world that's filled with lies. Let's pray. As I pray, the men can come as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, as we have walked through these truths and innumerable passages, we are just reminded of how easily we um, wrestle with the, the lies that are surrounding us. We have been born as those who are liars. We have been born into a society that lies to us, into bodies that lie to us. And we are so grateful that in time you have saved us and opened our minds to the truth. And yet we know that we still need the work of your Holy Spirit in us to illumine our minds to the truth, to help us to see reality as it really is from your perspective, so that we would live consistent with that reality. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is still in the darkness, who is still believing lies, lies like they can earn your favor. They can gain heaven through their good works. Lord, would you disabuse them of those lies? And would you open their minds to the glory of Christ, whose perfect life and substitutionary death is the only sufficient sacrifice that can make them right with you? Lord, we thank you that even though we are still in these bodies of sin and we wrestle with the flesh and we sin every day, that we are covered by the blood of Christ. And so, as we come to your table, as we come to proclaim the Lord's death, may you remind us afresh of that sacrifice. May we be repentant of our sin. May we desire to put it off, may we grow in hatred of sin, and may we love the truth more and more. Be honored as we celebrate this table, as we focus our hearts on Christ. In his name we pray, amen.